Welcome to another episode of Wes and Conversations about the films of Wes Anderson. This is episode two, which I am calling Smugmore because this is a proud <laughs> member of the Smugbuds family of podcasts. I'm your host, Will. And I'm joined by my co-host, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will. You know, uh, Goslings, I just want to let you know, he never tells me what he's going to no. say here. <laughs> no, never have, never will. <laughs> Not that I ask, but. <laughs> no. So, it's September 20th mm -hmm. as we are recording this. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. We went on vacation this week. We saw some... I mean, I mean, on vacation, I want to be very clear. Yeah. I feel like when some people are going on vacation, they're like, oh, we went on vacation, but it was fine. We like only did outdoor dining. Right. We uh, went camping, which in mm -hmm. and of itself is uh, social distancing. Right. Um, we did go, we were inside a structure for the longest we've ever been inside of a structure that is in our apartment in six months. Mm-hmm. That was Luray Caverns. Okay. That's um, the second time on this call. The first was before we started recording that I've heard you say caverns. Yeah. And, and caverns, right? Sure. Okay. If it were just once, obviously, <laughs> I did let it go the first time, as I should. I would. I That one time makes me think, oh, how, that's a simple misspeaking. How, how we did all I do say it? it? Caverns, as if the R comes before the E. <laughs> That's probably just how I say it. Instead this of caverns. Is like, this is like how I say, um, this is like how I say, uh, the, one of the large cats wrong that starts with a J. Uh, oh, well, that's a hard one. I, I, I've heard that pronounced three different ways. I don't know which one is correct. I say Jaguar. Ja I say Jaguar. <laughs> jaguar. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean that I, that's probably not the correct one, but I've heard it, <laughs> Kenny, and I wouldn't Kenny judge makes you fun for, of me it. for that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that that was all inside. But it was like there just weren't. I mean, it was one of those things where there just like weren't that many people out, which helped. So yeah. like when we were in the caverns, we were wearing masks the whole time, but we never actually got close to anyone. And the people we did see were like, you know, like fifteen feet away or something like that. So it just yeah. didn't. It was. I mean, maybe we'll find out we're sick this week, but I don't think so. And then we did also go to the zoo, um, which was almost entirely outside. I'm mm -hmm. trying to think if there was an inside part. Um, Zoos are beautiful places. Yeah. Zoos and aquariums are beautiful places. And, and when I say when I say this, I am quoting Newt Gingrich. <laughs> oh no. Who who. Uh, weirdly publicly loves zoos that's uh, just something i know about him and I, will, I think it's funny i will say so we went to the maryland zoo which we normally go to the smithsonian because it's closer and also free um that's a benefit of you know you pay an exorbitant amount of money for rent in dc but then you can go to museums for free um mm -hmm. including the zoo we went to the maryland zoo which is in baltimore which was not free uh because they have giraffes Mm -hmm. which was Elliot's favorite animal, so a bit of an early birthday present. But they also did a great job. They actually had it um, so you could only go one way on most of the paths. Mm -hmm. um, but also this particular zoo has the best 
design of any like zoo or museum or something like that of any place I've ever been. Mm. Um, like the fact that they could very easily make it so that everything was one way and there were very few places where you were like going, like passing somebody like on a road. Mm-hmm. There was like one place is very impressive to me. Nice. That's good. I have a couple of updates. Well, I was just going to say listeners would never forgive me if I didn't ask you for an update on the saga of the missing mattress, <laughs> which I can see from your, from your Skype uh, appearance that, yes, it has <sighs> not arrived. Yeah. So is, there, is there an ETA? I think we have to play a jingle right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, business. Um, so I was a bit nervous about going on vacation because I had not received any confirmation about when my bed was shipping. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to ship too early, but on Wednesday I hadn't gotten anything. And Thursday um, I got a notification that it had shipped. Mm-hmm. So – if all goes well, it will be here tomorrow. Wow. Um, which means I will get to sleep on it Tuesday. <laughs> but yeah, so that's my first bit of old business. My second bit of old business is more of a cute anecdote. Um, Elliot was taking a bath today, a midday bath, a rare occurrence. Mm. And he pulled his shirt down his arm so that he was like wearing almost like an off the shoulder shirt. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I'm an iguana. He said, I'm a guana. And we were like, what? And he like pulled the other side down. He said, I'm a guana. And we were like, what? Hmm. What makes that like, okay. Can, but- I, can I guess? Yeah. I mean, you've helped me by putting it in the context of old business <laughs> yes. of, of, of the podcast. Yes. He he meant Moana? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but the way we found this out was we did not find it out right then. Um, as uh, you know, we share a Disney Plus account. Yep. And Thanks to you. My uh, What's my profile picture? Moana. And so today, when we signed on to Disney Plus later, he went, see, iguana. I, <laughs> I was iguana. We were mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, Moana. <laughs> The second piece of old business is from our devotee of the pod, Sarah, who said to me as an accusation, you didn't tell me you were recording again. Yes, I told her last (laughs) night when we were hanging out in my backyard. She said to me, this isn't exactly a misheard, but I have a misheard type thing, Mm -hmm. which was that she said, I was listening to the Milan, I'll make a man out of you. And the line where he says, quote, Mr. I'll make a man out of you. I realized, and I think she meant moments before she messaged this to me. Mm-hmm. I realized, what I realized is that Shang is talking to Milan, Milan not saying Mr. Hyphen, I'll, you know, Mr. I'll hyphen, hi, make hyphen a hyphen man out of you. You know, like, like, Mr. You know, Mr. I'll Bright, make a man, yeah. Yeah, like Mr. Brightsider. Right, right. <laughs> And, like, speaking in third person, 
She, I was like, oh my god, that's very good. And she said, this is two decades of believing this, and I still mm-hmm. can't kind of hear it the other way. That's funny. Isn't that such a good one? That's a good peer into someone else's mind. Yeah. I have, I have to say, I don't want to spend the next two hours talking about your pronunciation of different things, but I'm following my rule because I, I let it go the first time, and then you said it again. What? It sounds like you're saying Milan, like the name of the place. No, M- Milan. Right. Okay. Yeah, Milan. Yeah. 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 You. Yes. You definitely. Maybe I'm know just saying it, it fast. Said. Maybe it's, it's just not- when I say it fast, it comes out Milan. I. So a brief. Uh, this can be another piece of old business, and then we can move on to the topic at hand, unless you have old business. But I don't think um, I do. One of the um, to go back to the Pennsylvania episode. One of the things that Pennsylvanians specifically do, and again, I I sort of have the generic like newscaster dialect from where I'm from. But one of the things we do tend to do is really shorten words and say mm-hmm. things really fast. So, yeah. like, if you'll remember, one of the things that I do say is slippy. Yes. Yeah. And so the fact that I might be saying, "Oh yeah, Milan." Mm-hmm. Like right. I'm just it's, I'm saying it so fast that I'm actually losing the long vowel sound and yes. making it seem like a short vowel sound. So that that tracks to me is my that point. makes sense that that I'm glad you put it in that context and that we had that context in our back pocket already. Mm-hmm. Thanks to your Pennsylvania episode. This is all very congruous and cohesive. <laughs> the, the longer oh. we keep doing this, the more the more <laughs> themes emerge. Sort of like a filmography. I'm so sorry. I actually do have one more piece of old business. Wasted segue. (laughs) Which is that we were talking about Mark Mothersbaugh, and we're going to talk about him again today, Mm -hmm. of course. Yes. But um, you suggested that he had maybe done all of the music except for the animated films, and I said maybe that sounded right. Mm -hmm. I did look it up, and I can't tell you... I didn't look at every single film, but he doesn't do the music on the Darjeeling Limited, and that was the mm. first one he didn't do the music on. So okay. we will be hearing from him a lot for sure, um, but we do get a, at least one break. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's his first like international film, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't. It's been a while since I've seen Life Aquatic. I don't really remember where it takes place, except for you know the ocean. Yeah, uh, but it takes if, place if, in the ocean, basically. Yeah. That it, it it doesn't have the same like cultural identity mm-hmm. that like the setting of Darjeeling Limited has. So maybe that has something to do with it. We'll 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 explore that when we get when we get there. Mm-hmm. But the reason we're not there yet is because we're here to talk about Wes Anderson's second feature film, 1999's Rushmore. You had never seen this movie before. <laughs> yeah. Prior to this exercise that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Which is remarkable and also interesting for the fact that I think that this was this movie was a lot of people's introduction to Wes Anderson. Which when you said that to me, I actually was confused by that because i know that the life aquatic is a weird introduction i don't have any qualms about that but Mm -hmm. most of the people that i talked to um when i started talking to other people about wes anderson in college the movie that they really all held dear was the royal tenenbaums i don't think i heard anybody mention rushmore (laughs) 
Okay, so this might be just my personal bias talking. I think, if I remember, I, I, I only have a vague memory of this, so mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not confirming it, but I think that we had a copy of Rushmore in our house growing up. I, oh. I think that, I think we had Rush. I think my parents owned Rushmore on DVD, mm-hmm. and I, I more distinctly remember. I I I am more sure of this <laughs> that my aunt and uncle had Royal Tenenbaums on DVD, and uh-huh. I can definitely remember seeing that on a shelf because that has like a really distinctive like pink box that the DVD came in. Wow. Yeah. But but I sort of remember Rushmore being in our house and I sort of think of it as a movie that sort of thrived on home video. That makes sense. Yeah. And I I also consider it a film that was sort of commonly seen at at the time that like turn of the cent- turn of the millennium because it came out in 99 mm-hmm. that that you know in the in the aftermath of of when it came out I also can tell you for a fact that people that I loved loved this movie even if I did not know it uh-huh. and by that <laughs> to throw back to another episode <laughs> do you know what I'm going to say are you throwing back to another episode because we've had Mike on the podcast? No. Okay. It's because of my most problematic fave. Uh, brand new? Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. Oh, wait. Okay, go on, go on. Okay. So, I mean, we'll get more into this and, and everything, but when I watched the movie for the first time, there were a couple of things that really popped out to me because I recognized them from other places. And mm-hmm. one of those things was when Jason Schwartzman is first talking to um, Miss Cross on the bleachers, they're talking about Latin and he says, sick transit Gloria, and then pauses and says, glory fades. Glory fades, right. Which is, of course, maybe the most popular brand new song from Deja and Tindu. It might, right. I mean, it's the most popular from Deja for sure, but it might be the most popular in general. Yes, I've been very clear when we talked about brand new that Deja and Tendu is the only brand new album that I really care about. Yeah. Of course, I know that song by name. I totally failed to make the connection. And I think I think the reason I failed to make that connection was because I myself took Latin in high school. Mm-hmm. And so to me, to me, it's just like, yeah, they they the movie and the and brand new, they were probably just drawing from the same well, yeah. not one drawing from the other. The reason But you're that totally I, right. I'm not arguing. I'm just oh, saying yeah. why I came at, to it in a different way. The reason it was such a light bulb moment for me was because the way that that's written is it's sick transit gloria and an ellipses and then glory fades. Mm-hmm. And I I remember as a youth googling this thinking there's something here. <laughs> Yes, like there's a reason right. that they put an ellipses and not something else and I'm missing something and I could right. never figure out what I was missing. And then so when I watched it for the first time, I like yelled because yes. I was like this. I was missing. I was correct. I was missing something. And this is what I was missing because it's directly quoting this part because there's that pause. Right. Um, yes, that's fantastic. You said when you saw this for the first time, which was how recently? <laughs> One week ago. Or like Perfect. two weeks ago or something. I actually Good. don't remember, but it was it was in the past month. 
And then I rewatched yes. it today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and to to follow up with what you said even more. Yeah, I had never seen this movie before. I had only even very vaguely heard of it. Mm-hmm. Like I it was, it was. If you'd asked me the order of his movies six months ago, mm-hmm. or let's not say six months ago, let's say nine months ago. Yes. <laughs> I would have said Bottle Rocket, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic. I would have not even thought of Rushmore. Interesting. I, I knew not. I didn't know who was in it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Um, the setting, I knew nothing even vaguely. Like, Isle of Dogs, which I also had not seen before we started this, mm-hmm. um, I at least had a concept of because I had seen the trailer. Right. <laughs> um, this one, I think I said to you, does it have something to do with a school? And yes. you were like, yes. I think we did that on the mailbag, yeah. That was all I knew. So I was really coming into this cold, which was very weird. <laughs> okay. So we have one million things to talk about, even just based on the past two minutes of you talking. I know, I know. But, but before we get any farther away from the brand new thing that you invoked, yes, I just want to bring up that you reminded me, I thought maybe you were, do you know the connection to Fallout Boy? Um. So I didn't know this until I, I read the I, IMDb me, trivia for this movie. Yeah. Uh, IMDb says, Max tells Dirk, quote, tell that stupid Mick he just made my list of things to do today, talking about O'Reilly telling lies about him. Fallout Boy made a song from that line. The song is titled, tell that Mick he just made my list of things to do today. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't didn't know that either. (laughs) But then you separately unknowingly you know without knowing that you invoked another band kind of of yeah of the era kind of of a similar genre that did the same thing you should we should submit that to imdb trivia oh yeah this is i can't believe i haven't thought of this because uh one of the things that's been getting me through quarantine is submitting trivia to places no is is it as a program on twitch uh, called the George Lucas Talk Show. Uh-huh. Um, pre- m- many times I have invoked Blank Check with Griffin and David. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that Griffin Newman is also on this program, the George Lucas Talk Show, which used to be a live show in New York. But since everything shut down, they started mm-hmm. doing their show as a live stream on Twitch. Nice. And you're like, thank. You're like, yeah, that sounds great to me. Yeah, because I haven't been in New York and I've never gone to the live show. And yeah. it's very funny. And I'm watching like a lot more like live streaming content lately mm-hmm. since uh, we've been in quarantine. And they are constantly invoking IMDb. And they're constantly like trying to get their listeners to do things like... Mm-hmm submit this word we made up to Urban Dictionary or, you know, something like that. And they're always saying like, and of course, you you know, you can and should submit this thing as a trivia fact to IMDb, you know, for this show or for the thing, the movie we're talking about or blah, blah, blah. We should do the same thing. We should make it a goal uh, that by the end of this season, we get our own uh, trivia that we've submitted 
uh, published onto IMDb. Again, I don't know if there's a vetting process or <laughs> if it's just like Wikipedia and you can kind of put anyone yeah. can put anything. Um, but after this uh, episode, is Wikipedia over, is actually incredibly stringent. <laughs> well, now it is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm remembering the old days. Uh-huh. Uh when I used Wikipedia for like academic purposes. Uh-huh. Um yeah, we're we're gonna find out after this episode <laughs> what the process is for uh submitting IMDB trivia. And we're gonna I start love... with that brand new song title. I love thinking of you um getting onto a computer and like um filling out forms. Because <laughs> occasionally you'll tell me that you'll you've done that and True. I just like I don't know. I just like thinking of you doing it. It makes me really happy. <laughs> That's nice. You'll be happy to know that it's most of what I do for work. <laughs> so. I love thinking about what people do for work, too. It just, you know what I mean? I think I'm that's. Glad and it that's, makes one of us happy, though. That's really nice. <laughs> well, I just mean, like, that's sort of what a Wes Anderson thing, though, too, right? Is like the idea of seeing somebody do, like, very like specific tasks sort of mundane things yeah sort of it's like sort of an like a weird asmr mm. edge activity. yeah that's an interesting way of looking at it i hadn't considered so let's sort of put this movie in context uh by saying last week we talked about bottle rocket his first feature mm-hmm. we talked about how that had a lot of his themes that we recognize in it, but visually speaking, it was not obviously recognizable as a mm-hmm. Wes Anderson movie, um, and it was not successful. Yes. However, critics liked it, and some people in the industry liked it. Mm-hmm. And somebody who took notice of it was the head of Disney. <laughs> and so... Disney picks up Wes Anderson and says, mm-hmm. we want you to make a touchstone picture. This this uh, Rushmore is a touchstone picture, which if you don't know, was uh, owned and operated by Disney. It's a, Dis- mm-hmm. it's a Disney film. Uh, and so uh, he gets to make Rushmore and it's his sophomore effort. And uh, I would characterize this movie as like his calling card movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Basically, no one knew what Bottle Rocket was, except for a small cult following. Mm-hmm. And so for the general public, when they saw Rushmore, it was the same as if the, this film and this filmmaker came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you can say about everyone in the film, except for Bill Murray mm-hmm. and maybe Brian Cox, who 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 are these people? Who's Wes Anderson? Who's Jason Schwartzman? Uh, just they come out of the ether, and it feels like a fully formed, like extremely confident, very specific vision. Yes, it absolutely does. And we saw it kind of grow out of Bottle Rocket, but most people just saw it like it was ex nihilo you know just like what is yeah. you know and and holy holy cow right yeah because because it is what it is and 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 people you know couldn't expect it they didn't have the context to expect it mm-hmm. so 
I can do more context, but should I turn it over to you and just ask what your impressions are of the film or or what your priorities are for for discussing it? So, I mean, we're going to talk about all the stuff you want to talk about, too. I <laughs> Of course. Um, but I, I have some, which is to say, I have some really weird sort of specific things I want to talk about with this film, okay. um, which we'll talk about as we go through. I, I don't sure. think I really. One of them is that... Um, there's a lot of things that show up in this movie that I see come up almost identically in other movies. Other Wes Anderson movies? or Yes. Okay. Which some of which are, um, mo- or most of which, not all of them, but most of which are in the life aquatic. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to point those out. I'm not going to like talk about them forever. There's an obvious connection, which I could point out. Bill Murray. Oh, I was going to say Jacques Cousteau. Oh, yes. There's the Jacques Cousteau. I, I can actually just run through these really quick. There's Let's Jacques Cousteau, which, of course, he is, you know, Bill Zissou is supposed to be sort of a Cousteau stand-in. Right. Yes. And in um, this movie, uh, Max is reading a book about Jacques Cousteau when he finds the note and uses the, the library system to trace it back to Miss Cross. And that's how and why... He meets Miss Cross, who he falls in love with. Yeah, there's and, the, the, and there's the whole thing about the aquarium and that, and the yes. and all her fish, and that grows out of the the Jacques Cousteau context. Yeah, so all of that feels very um, life aquaticy, clearly. Yep. Um, yep. But there's also like Bill Murray in general as a father figure to someone who's not his son, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the main thrust of the life aquatic. Right. Um, or someone that has not been his son in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I couldn't find the actual line at this moment, but I know we've talked about the trope of needing money or running yeah. out of money. You and there's that. a there's a moment where Jason Schwartzman says to Bill Murray in this movie, um, he's like, there, it's when he's asking about the job, mm-hmm. and he's like you're not taking the job and he's like no and he's like why are you here and he's like i need money but the way he says it is almost exactly the way bill murray says that bill murray says that line in the life aquatic mm, interesting um there's also a part where um he says uh jason schwartzman says to the scottish character um yep. be- uh besides now we're even Mm-hmm. And Owen Wilson says that line almost exactly in the Life Aquatic when he's mm-hmm. talking to um to uh, Willem Dafoe's character, and he says um he hits him, and Willem Dafoe says why'd you do that? And Owen Wilson says because I owed you one, and he's and then Willem Dafoe says but you gave me a warning already, you stood up for yourself, and he said I still owed you one, and Willem Dafoe says and now I n- and now I owe you one. Owen Wilson goes, no, now we're even. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is like a small thing, but like the whole fact that like the concept of like getting even, which is such a child childlike concept. Right. And we talk a lot of, with Wes Anderson about the sort of like mundane versus decadence and, um, you know, adults being brought up to children and children being and children, or sorry, adults being brought down to children and children being brought up to adults, which happens yeah. a lot in this movie. Right. And then there's one other little thing, and I know that this is small, but I noticed it, which is at the very, very end of the movie, 
Bill Murray picks up a kid and puts him up on a higher place and then is talking to him, mm. which happens with Willem Dafoe's um, nephew in The Life Aquatic. He picks mm-hmm. him up and puts him on his shoulders at the end of The Life Aquatic. Right. Um, so it it definitely feels like Wes Anderson does a movie and then there's things he didn't do all the way. And right. then he makes another movie. <laughs> Right. Well, this is the this is the narrative that they're always discussing on the Blank Check podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Is that um, Rushmore is successful enough that he not only gets to keep making movies, but he keeps getting to make bigger movies mm-hmm. that he has more and more control over. So Rushmore was the kind of like okay, we have this much of a budget and so the film is going to be like this of this particular scale and it's going to be this personal, mm-hmm. you know, to Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson who wrote the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're they're going to put their all into it, but they're going to put, put their all with the resources that they have. And then... Mm-hmm. As as success grows and grows, the resources grow and grow. And so the movies get more and more ambitious. And it be, and things recur because as you say, it's like, okay, maybe if, you know, five or ten years ago he had had the budget and the resources that yeah. he had with Life Aquatic, then at that time he would have made Life Aquatic or he would have made a similar movie, some movie that was like a hybrid of the two, but it's like, okay, he said what he wanted to say with the means that he had. Mm-hmm. And then the means keep, you know, heightening. And and now the, he's going to have a movie coming out eventually with about 40 different actors. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, gl- so I'm glad you mentioned that. I do. I do have one more thing. I just want to say really quick. Yeah. There's another one-to-one line repetition. Okay. Which is also... When it takes place in that same bleacher scene, mm-hmm. she's smoking a cigarette and he says, how long have you been smoking? And she says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 15. He's, she said, about since your age. And he said, you, he says, you should quit. Right. Which is almost the exact same exchange that happens between uh, Margot Tenenbaum and her mother right. in the hospital. Except she says, how long have you been smoking? And she says, since I was 12. And she, she very, she goes... Angelica Houston just uh, yeah. mm, says, well, I think you should quit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, you're you're right. That is a really memorable scene and a really memorable line reading. I haven't seen that movie in a while. And I distinctly remember that dialogue exchange. So the thing that I was going to bring up was you mm-hmm. brought up the size of the ensemble in the French Dispatch. Yeah. And what I wanted to bring up was we are in this kind of neat, cozy space where it would be very neat if we had 10 films to watch because we like to do 10 episodes a season. Yeah. Or plus or minus. And, and, uh, but instead we, we are currently being denied access to the 10th film. Mm -hmm. So we have nine to work with. And what that, uh, uh, this, this is not old business, but it's hearkening back to a previous episode. Uh, in my episode about making a mix, I, I mm-hmm. talked about like making a playlist of like 10 or 12 or 15 songs 
and thinking of the structure in terms of like there are like three acts. And so yeah. it's not I'm not thinking of the whole thing as a progression. I'm thinking of like these these smaller movements. And so now I'm applying that logic to the nine films that we have to watch mm-hmm. and thinking of them, you know, trying to, okay, is it useful for me? And I think it may be to think of these, this as like a trilogy of trilogies. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about looking at the first three movies as a movement is that Bottle Rocket is really like a two-hander. Yeah. Like, forget Bob Maplethorpe, forget Mr. Henry, their supporting characters. It's really Luke and Owen Wilson's movie yes. from like a character perspective. This movie, Rushmore, is a love triangle. Mm-hmm. So it's like one step up. It's more than just a two-hander between Schwartzman and Murray. It's also Miss Cross. And, and so it's a love triangle. Royal Tenenbaums sort of completes the set by being the first true, like, large ensemble movie. Like, there's, yes. like, ten, like, practically main characters mm-hmm. in the movie. So just from, like, a, you know, sort of script writing perspective, uh, I just thought that there was an interesting, you know, connection and, like, a prism through which to look at these movies. Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the, the way that that is escalating as it goes on. I think, too, to look at these first three movies, like Rushmore feels way more Wes Anderson-y to me than Bottle Rocket does. Of but course. it doesn't actually feel fully there yet to me. Not Royal completely. Tenenbaums feels fully there to me. Yes, After that, it's like everything is, I don't want to say being compared to Royal Tenenbaums, because I don't mean like, you know, that was the best one. But yeah. like everything after that is like, you know, I feel like really I'm comparing like, did he do this in Royal Tenenbaums or didn't he? Right. For, I feel like for Wes Anderson's critics who think that he is all style over substance, mm-hmm. I could understand thinking that Rushmore is like the perfect blend of like his style that's so distinct and staying grounded in the real world. Yeah, there's one scene in particular that I don't want to talk about yet that felt very grounding to me and in a way that I was like, no other movies of his does this. That's interesting. Okay. So where do we go from here? Should we, Should I I can think of more context setting. So maybe- Can I, I want to talk about my sort of like weird reaction to this movie as an adult watching it like an adult woman (laughs) okay yeah i i want to say i like this movie yeah Um, okay i'll just jump in and say i love this movie it is weird for me to watch it because it feels like it's double i mean this is also sort of like the decadence of wes anderson which is like it feels like it's doubling down on two male fantasies Mm -hmm. which is the fantasy of being cool enough for an older woman when you're young And then the same fantasy of being cool enough to be sexual for a young woman when you're old. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Like really neither of those people are, I mean, Jason Schwartzman's character is absolutely not appropriate for her, but um, Bill Murray also isn't either. It's just less creepy because they're both of consenting age. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my reaction to that would be to say that in my reading of this film, both of those characters, the young one and the old one, 
are so pathetic mm-hmm. that they have that fantasy, mm-hmm. but the movie is not a manifestation of that fantasy. I I can go with you on that. So the the second part of what I was going to say is, you know, we were talking last week about with Bottle Rocket that you can understand it being 1996, seeing this movie and being like, oh, my God. Oh, which I guess this is another piece of old business. You don't have to play the jingle again. Uh, I had posted about us recording for the season. Mm -hmm. And Brian Oliu, um, friend of me, I don't know (laughs) if he's ever listened to the podcast. No. um, He messaged me and said i love this movie Mm. i was the kid in college and he's five years older than us Mm -hmm. um so i think he he's sort of like is um bookended like sort of we bookended each other or hinged on a year or something in college but um he said i was the kid in college who made everybody watch bottle rocket Mm. (laughs) so you were saying like so i i was glad that you had said that on the podcast because we were pretty critical of that movie and I didn't want to make Brian mad. No, I don't mean that. I just mean like, I think that your sense of that was right in that like I, we then, I then talked to somebody who had that exact experience. Right. I can see. Seeing it at the time, the experience of seeing it at the time. I think that you're right about those characters, but I think that this might have what we sort of talked about with Rick and Morty. Go on. Remember how part of the Rick and Morty problem is that, like, it's not that Rick and Morty sucks for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's that Rick and Morty's fans suck because of the way that they interpret the material. Yeah. So, yes. The the argument that, uh, you know, not too long ago on Twitter, I saw someone become, as as some people say, the main character of Twitter for the day. <laughs> because because of her tweet about like here are the books that if you see on a man's bookshelf you should run screaming one infinite jest yeah. you know blah 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 it's like okay <laughs> and then in television and and movies we did talk I talked about like Breaking Bad Mad Men like you know anti-hero <laughs> stuff yeah I think that if I had seen this movie when I was 16 Mm-hmm. 15 14 i could have seen it at all of those ages yeah um because it came out when i was 11 i think i might have internalized it less critically than i do now okay let me just briefly tell you my experience and i'll be brief because i don't really distinctly remember it yeah yeah but but i w- i vaguely remember and so i would estimate that the first time I saw this movie, it was at home. I think I watched it alone. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I I would guess I was around 16, 17, 18. Okay. And I, do, I don't remember loving it. Oh, okay. That's good. I was not super into it. Mm-hmm. Since then... I think I've maybe only kind of half seen it once in a while. Mm -hmm. And so when I watched it this week for the podcast, I would say that that was my second complete viewing of the movie. And to me, I'm on the fence about whether this movie is a 10 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10. Okay. (laughs) That's how much I enjoyed it. The other thing I want to bring up too is that... um in terms of like 
the sort of like male gazy thing that I'm sort of trying to talk about here, which yeah. again is not something that I'm like it's it's not like I'm like the movie's bad because of it or something like that. It's mm-hmm. just something I noticed and it's like yeah. a little bit weird for me to experience. Sure. Um is that I'm 90% sure that she's not that Miss Cross is not wearing a bra for the entire movie. Okay. And I feel like that's important to note because it makes her boobs look very specific. Hmm. And I feel like this is a sort of like a male fantasy idea. Like I've seen it as a trope in other movies where like, you know, two, like a man and a woman are sort of having an argument or some sort of discussion. And the woman ends it by saying, I'm not wearing a bra. Or, like, I'm not wearing underwear or something like that. Okay. The idea being that she's, like, sexually available. And, this like... This is post-argument? This is, like, as a way to end the argument. Okay. Um, And, like, why would she not be wearing a bra the whole movie, Will? She's definitely not for most of it. That was not in any of the making of or behind <laughs> the scenes or interview clips that I watched. Um, if I had to guess, I, I guess it was a decision made in collaboration by the costume designer and Wes Anderson and maybe Olivia Williams herself. I don't know. And again, it just, I think it just sort of speaks a little bit to the nail gaze of it. Okay. Interesting. Um, not, not something that I picked up on. So that's interesting to, for me to hear. Yeah. I do look at women's breasts fairly regular regularly i can't um, i can't understand why <laughs> they're not beautiful or or like the most the best part of the female form no opinion <laughs> from here from me <laughs> oh will my love okay what do you want to talk about okay so let's set the scene a little bit more by talking about the fact that this is the debut film for jason schwartzman yes so he was 17 Anderson, when they filmed it, right? Yes. And the character okay. Max Fisher, is, he says that he's 15. Yeah. So Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson wrote this script uh, a while ago mm-hmm. and then got the opportunity to make it post Bottle Rocket. Because they, they wrote the first drafts of it before Bottle Rocket, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. This was this was a, a this was a back pocket, you know long time work in progress script for them. So uh, they get the opportunity to make this movie and Wes Anderson understands, okay, it is crucial that the kid who plays Max be perfect. Mm -hmm. This, I consider this sort of like a, a writer director's challenge to an actor where um, the script has been written so that the character simultaneously is reprehensible mm-hmm. and needs to be a sympathetic protagonist in the film for the audience. Yeah. And that is, a ch- that is a challenge for which you have to find an outstanding actor to be able to play that part mm-hmm. so that they do and do and say all the things that the character does that might naturally make somebody hate them Mm -hmm. but that we are still basically rooting for him and care what happens to him 
even even if we don't always agree with him or like him. Yeah. So they audition kids for a year or more. Didn't they audition eighteen hundred kids? That Did is, I see that on that Wikipedia? That is what I read. Yes, they they I read that too. That they auditioned almost thousands of kids um, in not only the United States but also Canada mm-hmm. and and uh, the UK. Wow. They um I I saw Wes Anderson say in one interview that they started auditioning English kids. They hadn't found the right kid and they they considered the possibility that maybe the character would be an American kid who like part of his thing is that he fakes an English accent. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life it would be the actor's real accent, real voice. <laughs> Which is very funny to talk about, but would probably ruin the film if they actually but, did it. But also fully sounds like something that Wes Anderson would do. Yeah, Like sure. that totally tracks. Yeah, absolutely. So they audition uh, so many people. They're also looking all over for where Rushmore is going to be. Mm-hmm. And they think they found someplace in Scotland before finally they film it at the private school that Wes Anderson went to in Texas. Oh my God. It's his, it's his school. Yeah. It's, I think it's called St. John's, but they audition internationally for, for, <laughs> for a year, hundreds and hundreds of people. Elijah Wood comes through the door. They say, no, you're <gasps> not good enough. Elijah Wood. You're not right for this role. Go away. To be fair, Elijah Wood's just pure and perfect. So, that would it would be interesting to see. I think I think he. I just recently rewatched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, a, a movie in which Eliza Wood plays a very annoying creep. He's and, so scummy in that, he, yeah. and he does it so well. But it's really funny, and like you don't hate him, you just enjoy it. Yeah, I guess that's. But true, he's also actually. a supporting character. So would it work if he were the lead doing a similar thing? I don't know. I don't know. Elijah um, Wood is somebody that if Elijah Wood was like. Do you want to be my girlfriend? I'd be like, yeah. And Kenny would be like, what? And I'd be like, I mean, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, undeniable. So uh, finally, they see Jason Schwartzman. So Jason Schwartzman, uh, do you know anything about Jason Schwartzman's family? He, yeah, he's related to everyone. He's a co- <laughs> he's a Coppola. Yeah. Um, his, his uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, his cousin is Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, his mother is, I want to say her name is Talia Shire. Um, Googling this real quick. Jason Schwartzman mother. Yeah. Talia Shire. That's right. Also, uh, an actor. So, um, Jason Schwartzman, young Jason Schwartzman, not an actor. Mm-hmm. Yet. N- not even really considering it. He's a musician and considers himself a musician. He's a drummer yeah. in a band called Phantom Planet. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's all he is. Well, but also he says in an interview, like he 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 had written a play. So I I don't I don't actually mean that's all he is, but like yes. to hear him talk about it, he can he considered himself a musician he was not looking to become an actor 
but uh, he met a casting director. And I say a casting director because there were many because Mm -hmm. they were working so hard for so long (laughs) to find the kid who would play Max. And he met a casting director at a party, his like family's party. And uh, she, oh, and of course, um, Sofia Coppola was Mm -hmm. the one to make the introduction. Um, and, uh, Sofia Coppola had heard from the casting director what she would, who she was looking for and said, oh, that kind of sounds like Jason. And so, she's only nine years older than him too. So they're not like, like they're sort of peers. They are peers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, the casting director meets Jason Schwartzman, thinks, you know, this could be Max Fisher, rightfully so. And so convinces him to audition, even though he was reluctant to. Mm-hmm. Despite being reluctant to, he shows up to the audition wearing a blazer with a Rushmore crest that he created himself. <laughs> I love him. He's so great. <laughs> and he gets the part Im- immediately. Yeah. And and not only is he Max Fisher, but Wes Anderson and Jason Schwartzman, who at the time, again, was 17 years old, mm-hmm. become, you know, lifelong friends and, and collaborators. Yeah. So Jason Schwartzman has to carry this movie absolutely on his back as Max Fisher in Rushmore and he and I would say he does it beautifully and impeccably. Yes. And and here's here's where my take enters the conversation. And yet still somehow still his performance is overshadowed by Bill Murray's performance. I know. Okay, I'm glad that you agree with me. <laughs> they're 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 both superb, but Bill Murray is transcendently superb. He is so good at being tired and um oh what was the other word I wrote down? I wrote this down cuz I was like don't forget this combination. Melancholy? Important but tired. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that Bill Murray is sort of inherently high status. Yes. As the movie star he is. And yet, despite being so high status himself that he arguably should only play high status characters like Herman Bloom, who is, you know, so wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also so good at being a sad sack mm-hmm. that I would argue sad sack is actually his best mode. He's yeah, a, he's actually a better sad sack than he is the sarcastic guy who's above it all, which is kind of his other most well-known mode, right? Like well, the, the Ghostbusters mode of, yeah. of Bill Murray performance. Well, and also he's so good at having some amount of clout. Yep. Uh, oh, this is the other thing that felt very life aquatic to me. I feel like his character is very similar. Mm-hmm. In that he has some amount of clout. So in this movie, he has a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In Life Aquatic, he has, you know, he's sort of famous, right? Yes, yeah. Um, but things aren't going well for him. Right. And he'd make some bad choices. Yeah. But in the end, when he 
actually breaks down, you feel terrible for him and you Mm -hmm. just want him to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I've given away, I've shown my hand by transitioning from the scene setting to the performances. Bill Murray is my favorite performance in this movie, despite it being a showcase for Jason Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman's talent. Um, So do you want to get into other favorites or do you want to go through the plot of this movie or, or do you have another idea of where to go next? Just really quick, this is just from Wikipedia, so anybody can see this. Did you see about how Murray got cast in this movie? Um, I mean, I I know that he read, I know the part was written for him, and I know someone gave him the script, and he read it, and he was like, I'll do this for free. Yeah. He loved the script so much. Basically, he, they wrote him with him in mind, but they never thought they were actually going to get him. Of course. But his agent liked Bottle Rocket. I mean, I think that's the mm. thing that about Bottle Rocket that's worth bringing up is that the people who liked it right. were people who had some power. Right. And um, when he read it, he said that he particularly liked the um, precise writing that Wes Anderson does, which I think precision is definitely a word that we can associate with Wes Anderson overall. Yeah. Um, and he agreed to work for scale. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Do I you? Think, I think that is like the union mandated minimum pay for which, an Which they thought was going to be about $9,000. Yes, that's right. Um, which is also, again, this is one of those things where like, not to say that Wes Anderson isn't talented because he's clearly very talented, mm-hmm. but he got the right people to see him at the right time. Yes. Which is not just being lucky, right? That's partially yeah. being lucky. Right. But it's being lucky and then having something to show, mm-hmm. you know. I right. had a nightmare once. <laughs> I had a nightmare once that I was walking down the street and met Adam Driver and mm-hmm. didn't have a copy of my book to give him. Mm-hmm. And that's like never happened. Maybe not never. That's not what happens with Wes Anderson that we see. What we see what happens with Wes Anderson is somebody sees him and he's like, oh, I have a thing. Right. I have my book with me. He had, he, yeah, he had his short film at the very beginning and then he had his first feature, which, you know, can't claim box office success. But like, like, like we, like you said, critics saw it and liked it. People in the industry saw it and liked it. Hence, mm-hmm. hence more opportunities despite the, uh, you know, monetary failure of Bottle yeah. Rocket. Sort of failing upwards. Yes. <laughs> um, but this movie this, was a success. This movie did make money. It made, um, according to Wikipedia, its budget was 9 to 10 million and it made 17 to 19 million. Yeah. So not like so, a huge hit, but like. It for, made its back. for Yeah. For, for what it is. A success. Can we talk about um, my favorite scene? Yeah. Because my favorite performance is Bill Murray. Yeah, I'm glad. Sure. I'm glad we agree. My favorite scene, and this actually almost swayed me on performance, which, because when it was happening, I was like, oh, you know, it's I, like so much, but I, it's when I Jace, wonder, it's. I wonder if we have the favorite, the same favorite scene. Okay. Um, what do you want to say it on three? No, I, I want to hear you say it and then I'll, I'll reveal. Hands down. My favorite scene is when Max tries to kiss Rosemary Cross and she starts 
talking to him about what does he expect this relationship to look like. Gotcha. Okay. Not what I was expecting you to say because you were just talking about Bill Murray. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) well, no, that's what I was saying is like her performance in that scene almost swayed me from Bill Murray. Gotcha. Yeah. Because, and this is what I think, I don't think this is in any other Wes Anderson movie. Right. Which is that, Again, part and this I think actually supports what you were saying about how the movie is critical of its own characters. But um, you know, you have Max, who's entirely inappropriate and is so smart and charming that people just keep going along with him for like no reason, it seems like sometimes. Like sometimes it's like you shouldn't like no, you should like these adults should be putting down a hard line for mm-hmm. this child, this actual child. It's not like this kid is like 17 going on 18. It's not like this kid is 18 but still in school so it's a problem but he's actually a consenting adult. Like this is a child. Mm-hmm. And when he tries to kiss her, first off, it's very clear she does not want to kiss him and it's very assaulty and gross and so cringy. But, and I remember the first time seeing that being like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? And then she looks at him and she says, what do you think is going to happen between us? Do you think we're going to have sex? Right. And he sort of mumbles. You can barely yeah. barely hear him say, well, I think that's sort of – I forget exactly how he words it. But he says something like, I think that's like a reductive way to describe it. Right. And she says, it's not if you've actually fucked before. Right. And it's like all of the air is just sucked out of the yeah. room oh yeah absolutely it's it's like a show stopping yeah it's a it's a very unusually direct confrontation for the movie and for his movies in general yes and it and it's a total showstopper yeah and it i don't want to say it justifies necessarily but it balance that part balances out everything else Completely. You need that scene. Yeah. Yes. It's it's critical. And it's so, this is what I mean when I say it's so tonally different than anything else Wes Anderson does Mm -hmm. in any of his other movies. Yeah. Because the the other thing that happens there is that, you know, with Wes Anderson, something I talk, I've brought up a couple of times is that he really downplays trauma. Yeah. So like in this movie that happens too. Um, he, at the beginning when Max is talking to Bill Murray, he says, um, oh, were you in, you were in Vietnam, right? And he said, I was. And he says, you You were were in the shit? shit?" And he says, I was in the shit. He says, yeah, I was in the shit. Yeah. Completely downplayed it. Extremely Um, funny moment. Yes. That, that is, Um, that is a successful joke. Same thing when he's talking to, um, her about. They're the people in their lives dying, like he's using it to hit on her. Right. But yeah, it's we totally both have down- dead people in our families. I guess yeah. we both have dead people in our families. But it's completely downplaying the trauma that she is still very freshly in the grief of her husband having dying. We learn later she's sleeping in his childhood bedroom in his childhood bed. Mm-hmm. And so to have us get to this moment where He's essentially assaulted her. Again, he's a child, so like it gets a little bit weird. Um, and for her to just be so direct with him and take that out of the room, the performance of, I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. And even Jason Schwartzman, too, in that scene, yeah. just looks, he looks like a child for the first time in the movie, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
other times he looks childish. So mm-hmm. like that hilarious. I also really, really like the scene where they're at the at the dinner and Bill Murray's bought him like a whiskey sour or whatever. A whiskey soda, yeah. A whiskey soda. Um Oh, are they? <laughs> and he's like so he's like so mean to Luke Wilson. It's simultaneously a very funny and very uncomfortable scene. It's, yes. It's, it's uh it's something very special. So that scene I almost counted as my favorite when mm. I was rewatching it and then I was like no 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 it's it's this one. Two great picks. Yes. Um, um but yeah, it's it's because like it does I think it it handles something in a way that Wes Anderson has never handled again. Mm. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a very special extraordinary scene and I'm glad you invoked it. Um, my favorite scene is going to pale in comparison to that because <laughs> I've, we've we've been so over it, this. We've we've been is here. It surprising? Before. Did you go with something funny and I went with something serious? Hmm. Did that happen? Did I prioritize what makes me laugh the most? Hmm. Well, um, in my defense, it, it the what is being played for comedy in my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. is how depressed the characters are. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I sort of have like back-to-back favorite scenes. Okay. I think everything in the hospital, <laughs> that's the funniest <laughs> and my favorite part of the movie. And the and the runner-up is the scene that comes first. And it's when Max visits Dr. Guggenheim, who has had a stroke. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, can I talk to him? Can he hear me? And the wife is there. She says, yes, talk to him. He can hear you. And uh, he's, he says like, Dr. Guggenheim, it's me, Max Fisher. And she says something about how like he can't recognize you or he won't respond. And and then he immediately, he's, he's like, I know it's you, Max. <laughs> and, and he's like, what do you want? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and she's like, that's the first time he said anything. <laughs> that is that's so funny. Because that's that's not only just like a comedic premise, but also like it's so indicative of like the character of Max mm-hmm. and and the, and their relationship and like what he embodies, you know, Such in, a thorn in the in lives of the adults around him. Yeah. It's like it's he it's as if he's like Dennis the Menace to like Mr. Wilson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then that's followed with my favorite scene, Mm -hmm. which is when Max and uh, Mr. Bloom meet in the elevator. Yes. And Bill Murray has a smoked down cigarette hanging out of his mouth that he never takes out of his mouth and says his lines of dialogue with it. He has a can of soda in his (laughs) Rest pocket of his It's jacket. Diet Coke, too. He has a Diet Coke in his pocket, and he unscrews a little, like, airplane-style bottle of some alcohol <laughs> and pours it into the can in his pocket. <laughs> he drinks it. He, he also stores the bottle in, like, some towels behind them. Yeah. He just stashes it away. And then he later he does the same with the can after he's emptied it. But my favorite thing, the thing after when, you know, I saw this movie for the first time once, like over 10 years ago, the 
beat that I remember most from this movie is when he lights a second cigarette and puts it in his mouth. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's there's a lot of good, there's a lot of big laughs and good jokes in this movie. Nothing is funnier to me <laughs> than that he has a cigarette already in his mouth and he lights another one and starts smoking it. And it's And it's because he's just in this state of like, you can just see it on his face, in his posture, just like, it's like... His hair. Yeah. His hair's sticking straight up and he doesn't have very much of it. He's just, he's utterly emotionally devastated. Yes. And it, and it's, and he plays it so funny. <laughs> but also at the same time, like, you feel bad for him. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's not just like, ha ha, point and laugh mm-hmm. at the sad man. It's also like you feel for him, but also he's doing just really good physical comedy. I have a similar favorite scene that almost was my favorite. Well, it wasn't wasn't ever my favorite scene, but I thought it was very um, Wes Anderson exemplary, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when he's at his twins. Are they twins? Yeah, his twins. Bill Murray's twin sons. Yeah. At their birthday party. Yeah. And his wife is clearly having an affair. Yeah. Because she's feeding another man cake. And we know it's his wife because it cuts to their family portrait, (laughs) which which we already, which is awful. And we already (laughs) saw it at the very beginning of the film. It's like the Mm -hmm. first thing we see. (laughs) And also, did you notice the hand painted birthday sign too? I don't think I clocked that. Oh, there's a hand painted birthday sign that says, like, happy birthday. And it has. It has their faces on it. Oh, I miss that. That's funny. <laughs> but he's sitting in a chair across from everyone else. It seems like they're at a community pool. I think the first time I watched it, I thought they were at their pool. But I, I think that it, it must was their like yard. It looks like a community. Let me put it this way: maybe it is their pool. Maybe in real life, it's a community pool. Yeah. It does not look like any pool that a person would put into their backyard. Right. But he's supposed it's to be too re- industrial. Right. Um, and he's sitting there with the cake. It's ravaged. Yes. But there's still multiple candles burning on it. That's true. He's smoking a cigarette and not wearing a shirt. Yeah. And just throwing fucking golf balls into the pool. For no reason. For no reason. He just, he's got one of the golf ball caddies that like, I think of it like a driving driving range. range, Yep. And then he gets, he's also, it's also too cold to be having a pool party. <laughs> True. It there's no way it's actually hot. Yes, the earliest in the year that it is in this movie is September because of course we get the curtains for the sort of transitions from one chapter to another mm-hmm. and we go through September, October, November, which is very brief, December and finally January. Yes. Yes, which I, I love. I don't recall. Very which, Wes Anderson. I don't recall which month the pool party is in. But September. Okay, yeah. So it's definitely the most legitimate month. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's still, still like. Probably cold. Yes, probably cold, even for Texas. Yes. And then he gets up. And do you remember what his swim trunks are? It Are they are they Budweiser? They're yeah. Budweiser. It's just the full logo. Right. It looks like yeah, like a bottle back. like the label on a bottle of Budweiser. <laughs> yeah. That's a great detail that I didn't really think about. <laughs> I that that scene is not 
is not my favorite, but is just such a fucking delight. Like, just so nice. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up that scene because I wasn't sure I was going to mention it. But since we're talking about it, this is something that I also saw Wes Anderson talk about uh, in an interview. Have you seen the movie The Graduate? Uh, No, but I know about it. Yeah. So in the interview, Wes Anderson is asked about the fact that like Mike Nichols is one of his heroes, apparently. And so he talks about just like how much uh, he and Owen Wilson love The Graduate and would like talk about it endlessly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in collaborating on writing their own scripts, you know, invoke you know, the graduate, we want it to be like this and that from the graduate. And, and the interviewer, I think, asks him for an example. And by the way, the reason I'm not linking to this interview in the show notes is because it is an interview from the time um, with Charlie Rose, Mm -hmm. who is not only the monster that we know him to be today, but also just a straight up terrible interviewer who I hate (laughs) watching clips of. And uh, so Charlie Rose asks him for a specific example. And he says, well, there's a scene in this in this movie where Bill Murray uh, cannonballs into a swimming pool and then he stays underwater and we see him, you know, shot under the water. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's ju- that's just from The Graduate. There's a scene in The Graduate mm-hmm. where Dustin Hoffman's parents have bought him like a wetsuit. <laughs> and what he does with it is he puts it on, he dives into a swimming pool, mm-hmm. and then he stays underwater for a while. So that scene, specifically the part of the scene, not with the throwing golf balls and the cheating wife, but the part where he jumps yes. into the pool and stays under, that's sort of a, a, an homage, if you will, to, yeah. to the graduate. I'm trying to see if there was anything else very specifically I wanted to talk about. So, that oh and I I did want to say with that too that um that I felt like was not was a perfect example of how Wes Anderson butts up decadence and rot hmm. um where something is like somebody clearly has for example a lot of money but is failing mm-hmm. or has a lot of something but not of something else yeah um and also then the mundane, right? So it's mm-hmm. a children's birthday party. Right. <laughs> but here's this man clearly suffering. Yeah. I have a favorite shot that I want to talk about. Or... Please, because I, I couldn't pick a favorite shot. I okay. uploaded like three or four different screenshots. Mm-hmm. So um, um, another way of talking about this is that it's it's actually like my favorite camera move. Or, yes. or or maybe it would be better to say it's my favorite cut in the movie. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason I want to talk about this moment is because so you were talking, we, we've talked about the character mm-hmm. and I talked about like, okay, he's terrible, but we have to root for him. You talked about how all the adults are charmed by him, but like somebody should really be intervening. Uh, the, so, so the way I want to frame this is to say that in order for us to be on board for the movie, Mm -hmm. then we have to buy into the idea 
that Max is almost supernaturally charming. Yes. Uh, and that he will get away with so much uh, with the adults in his life, even though he's a failing student and he's really annoying most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So here's how I think they accomplish this. First, for you know, one 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 small way in which they accomplish it. And the and the shots that I want to invoke are in like so like the first scene of the movie is the dream sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And then when he's woken up, it turns out he's in the chapel and he sees Bill Murray's speech and he loves it. And so the the next scene is coming out of the chapel and he introduces himself to Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And so they're coming out of the chapel. And so it's a walk and talk. Which he loves a walk and talk. He loves a walk and talk. And uh, it's a Bill Murray and Dr. Guggenheim. And then Max comes up behind them and between them to insert himself and introduce himself. And then the walking stops for the introduction. And we get a wide shot. And and it's the it's the the moment I want to talk about is the trans the transition from the wide shot I'm now talking about to the next shot. Mm-hmm. So the wide shot is it's Bill Murray here on the left, Dr. Guggenheim here on the right, and Max in the middle of them with Dirk, who he introduces as mm-hmm. his chapel partner. Mm-hmm. And so hands are shaken and introductions are made. And Max just wanted to introduce himself because he thought that his speech in there was brilliant. And, and, and Max is in the center of frame. And then, without really saying anything, Max takes a step in the direction towards Bill Murray so that he's standing side by side with him. <laughs> and there's just enough time to make you think that, like, this is awkward. Mm-hmm. Why is this what he's doing when the conversation has naturally come to an end? Yes. And and then once he makes that move, there's a cut and it cuts to a shot that is like a two shot mm-hmm. where Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman are perfectly like framed together, mm-hmm. standing side by side. And and to in my reading, it happens this way because it is as if Max, in his supernatural charisma, edited the movie. Oh, like like he <laughs> he just like he take it's like it's like an actor like reaching their mark. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's ju- he just like steps we watch him step onto his mark <laughs> and then it cuts to the shot that was made for that mark, that configuration yes. of these two characters. And he essentially he essentially uses his his charms, his charisma, his like aura mm-hmm. which is very controlling and just just shuts out the other characters like he he just he just makes it all about him and bill murray Mm -hmm. and the fact that they are like a duo now 
And, yes. and, and all he says is, I just think that you're really right about Rushmore. And then he leaves. And uh-huh. then the shot, and then cut to another shot, and we get to see him leave. And that's when Bill Murray says to Brian Cox, you know, that kid, Max Fisher, wow, really sharp kid. And then it cuts to Brian Cox on the left, Bill Murray slightly behind him on the right, and Brian Cox says he's one of the worst students we've got. <laughs> yes. Which is one of the better lines in the movie as well. Such a good line, especially because we've really just been like – on this kid's side. Right. And then this, this is still like very early in the movie. Brilliant edit from that sort of punchline of mm-hmm. he's one of, because we've seen the dream sequence where he solves the math problem. He loves the speech. He is so mm-hmm. charismatic introducing himself. He walks away. He's one of the worst students we've got. And then dun, 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 and then montage. And it's the montage yes. of all the clubs. And this is why earlier when you said you were going to invoke an earlier episode of the podcast, I brought up Mike because mm-hmm. I thought you were going to bring up the fact that this is a, this is a movie about Mike. This, <laughs> this is a movie about our friend Mike. Uh, Who works know, at a private school and is a dean. He's a dean now, but but when in, in our heyday, when we first knew him, he was, you know, his reputation was... He's president of everything, you know. Yes. He's involved in every extracurricular. I don't really know what his grades are like. Maybe he did much better than Max Fisher, <laughs> academically speaking. But yeah, I think he was very annoying and had like a three nine nine at one. He, I, I actually do know for a fact that when he rushed Find Me Delta, he had a three nine nine or a four because that class had a three nine nine average. So he must have had a essentially. I think it went down, but yeah, very annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very annoying. Well, I, I, I'm not annoyed by it, you know, <laughs> because my GPA was so high as well. So I had a three eight nine. Okay, I had like a three so, nine seven. So sociology really killed me, but we had a bad teacher who was an adjunct, and not that adjuncts are bad teachers, but this guy was a bad teacher, and it was the semester my grandfather died. Mm. So kind of fucked me. Yeah, understandably. <laughs> um. Yeah, I wanted to bring this up because I feel like this is the first, like, real montage we get. So, yes. And so one additional thing that I want to say about this movie in general Mm -hmm. is that if I have anything negative to say about it, and I'm not even sure that I want to classify this as a criticism, I just Mm -hmm. want to float it as an observation, which, which might be a little bit of a suggestion for an alternative mm-hmm. there are so many montages in this movie <laughs> yeah there are and and that leads me to say maybe too many yeah not that i know i don't i haven't thought about each and every one of them i don't know what i would cut like which one you would cut yeah but so much is done with montage that i started to think like well this is getting a little ridiculous <laughs> Well, okay, so this actually brings me to a question that I had for you. Go on. As you know, I'm keeping a caper count. Yes. How many capers? So I'm wondering, I feel like the this movie is not super caper heavy. We know that they come up later. Yes, of course. 
But I was wondering, and I, I'm leaving this fully to you, is if we can count the montage where they're sort of fucking with each other and like Bill Murray runs over his bicycle, for example. If we can count those as capers. <laughs> okay, so here's what I would say. I would say of the items in that montage, yeah, there is one that stands above the rest that comes the closest, and that is the beekeeping thing. Yes, that is a caper. That I'm going to count as a caper. Okay, yeah, you're free to count that as a caper. And, I, and, and so I will support you. And since I'm supporting you, I will say that what really tips it over the edge and makes it a caper is that Jason Schwartzman is dressed as one of the wait staff when he and, comes out and, of the elevator. And we get slow motion. Yes, right. And he puts his gum on the thing. That's <laughs> one of the best shots in the movie. Yes. So the other thing that I would say, um, I was, and and you can reject this and I won't be offended because now we have a caper on the board and I and that's mm -hmm. fantastic. So So we don't necessarily need another. But I was going to say that the thing that is most like a caper in this movie is the thing that gets him expelled. Oh, which is the like uh... the gr the first groundbreaking for the aquarium yeah. that he totally just sets up on his own, yeah. and he has like the kid from whatever the school newspaper is like covering it like the press does, and yada yada yada. Um, okay, so now that. We're talking about, I don't think I want to count that as a caper. Fair it enough. seems too bureaucratic. <laughs> That's fair enough. But, but, but you're right. The bees is definitely a caper. But the bees is a caper. And if the aquarium groundbreaking is not a caper, it is is it is at least like a flim flam. Yes. It's, it's like a <laughs> flim flam on such a grand scale that that's the thing that gets him expelled. And this, this leads me to say, I just want to say really quickly. Yes. Um, comparing what I remembered of this movie with what I didn't, mm -hmm. I totally forgot all the stuff about uh, Grover Cleveland High School. I totally forgot that he gets expelled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a crucial part of the movie. But looking back, you know, try remembering it from however many years ago, I mainly just remembered Rushmore as the setting for the entire film and the mm -hmm. film is about the love triangle between these three people. I, I I was actually taken by surprise when he gets expelled as early in the film as he does. Yeah. And then so much time is spent with him either at the other school or not going to school at all. So I'm going to say a short thing and then we'll talk about the expelling thing, which I have a longer thing to say about, okay. which is that the... So when he gets the groundbreaking for the first aquarium. Yes. We get a couple of weird little things that aren't really important, but I want to talk about them. <laughs> the first that I'll talk about very briefly is that we get um, Andrew Wilson. Yes, that's right. Not only Luke Beck. Wilson, but also Andrew Wilson is in this movie. And Owen Wilson is technically in the movie. I read this, but I didn't see it. Did you see it? I saw it the first time I watched it. And I couldn't find it the second time. Interesting. But I was taking notes the second time. So I was sort of switching in between my... I guess I could have watched it on my TV, but I wanted to be able to take screenshots. So I watched it on my computer. Fair enough. Um, what we're referring to is I, I did not clock this, but I read on IMDb trivia that in uh, Miss Cross's bedroom, 
mm-hmm. there are pictures of her dead husband, Edward Appleby. And uh, the pictures are of Owen Wilson. Yes, which makes it even funnier, again, that she's then sort of dating Luke Wilson because uh, – or it's implied that she's dating Luke Wilson. Right. Because, again, they're brothers. Yes. <laughs> but we get Andrew Wilson, who sounds more like Owen Wilson than he's ever sounded yes. in his damn life. Mm-hmm. Dana said the same thing. <laughs> if you thing. didn't know, you'd think it was Owen Wilson with like a slightly deeper voice. Yes. <laughs> um, and can I just also, say real quick – Yeah. I today in my last minute research, I watched a behind the scenes making of featurette, which I loved and can't recommend highly enough. Look for the YouTube links in the show notes. It was made by Wes Anderson's brother, who not only shot it, but narrates it. (laughs) And in the narration, he refers to Andrew Wilson as Andrew Future Man Wilson. <laughs> Which I will remind the listener that Future Man was the name of Andrew Wilson's character in Bottle Rocket. <laughs> and Bottle Rocket is like barely invoked, so it's it's an it's an out of place reference. Do you do you know what this reminds me of? To, do tell. So you know how in the national the band, mm-hmm. there's two sets of brothers. Yes. There's the Desner twins, mm-hmm. and then there's the other two. Yeah. <laughs> there's the drummer and the bassist. Yeah. And then the sort of lone wolf is mm-hmm. Matt, Matty B. Matty B. Discussed him because yeah. we cannot say his last name. We don't know. It's a mystery. No one knows how to say it. Who cares? If you say it, it a demon appears. So we just can't even mm, try. Candyman. God forbid we get it right. There is a documentary that came out about the National Maybe, that was yep. directed by Maddie B's brother. Maddie B's brother, <laughs> big uh, big metalhead, uh, fuck up kind of a guy. If if you believe his own movie, yeah, yeah. So that's very funny. That's very reminiscent of that. It's so charming. I am a hundred percent sure you were going to love it. <laughs> and uh, it's it, the featurette. The featurette, yes. <laughs> The other thing that happens here is there's a song by Mark Mothersbaugh, mm-hmm. my dude, um, who called, um, oh, I have it up so I don't fuck up the title. Piranhas are, are a very tricky species, yep. which is something that is said in this scene. Yep. It's a max line. And this is the first time we also get this very specific shot that Wes Anderson does, which is a pan- it's like a camera on a – I'm sure that if anybody who knows anything about film listens to this, they're going to be like screaming that we don't know the words for this shit. Well, I'll, I'll just say I, I think it's a, called a tracking shot. <laughs> and uh, the, the camera is on a dolly. Yes. So the camera's on a dolly. It's a tracking shot and it's panning. But the thing that Wes Anderson is doing specifically is he's showing one character – basically checking in with a bunch of other characters mm-hmm. that are doing various activities. Right. And this tracking shot ends with him talking to Andrew Wilson. Mm-hmm. And I swear on my life that this shows up, this song shows up in another Wes Anderson movie. Mm. Because when I heard it, and again, I have not seen this movie before, mm-hmm. a month ago or whenever, yeah. a few weeks ago, I heard this and 
it was another moment where I responded like when the when he said sick transit glory glory fades I yelped yeah and when this happened I was like this isn't something else this is in something else already right and I for the life of me cannot remember what it is mm. I think it's in the life aquatic but maybe I'm leaning on that because it is as I've probably mentioned more than enough times my favorite movie my second my favorite Wes Anderson movie my second favorite movie of all time yeah um I showed my brother uh I took a video of that scene and sent it to Blake and Blake was like you're right this shows up someplace else Mm -hmm. I don't know where it is yeah I started watching clips from the life aquatic Eventually, I got to the point where I was like, I need to stop watching clips from a movie we aren't talking about this week. Right. The good news is that we will be watching all these movies, so I know I'll find it. Yeah. Kenny thinks that maybe it's just another Mark Mothersbaugh track that sounds like this one, but Mm -hmm. I just, I feel in my soul that it exists someplace else. I can't find it anywhere else on the internet, except, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this is not a Wes Anderson movie, but I did text this to you. On this video that I um, of this song that's on YouTube, there's one person that commented and they said, this is also used in Madagascar when the gang run past the drummer after exiting the subway. <laughs> right. So you claim that that's not what you were thinking of. No, because mm. I've never seen Madagascar. Mm, okay. <laughs> Though there was literally a year and a half where anytime Kenny and I went to the movies when I was in grad school, we got an ad for Madagascar 3 and it felt like that movie was never going to come out in theaters and then it did come out in theaters and we thought we were fine and then we started getting all of this like merchandising for Madagascar 3 around Christmas time and we were like it was like literally a two year period where we were like just inundated with Madagascar 3 (laughs) they they advertised those kids movies for a very long time especially sequels yes Uh, yeah it would be uh, sort of a clever connection right if Mark Mothersbaugh reused a track called Piranhas Are a Very Tricky Species for Life Aquatic. So so I, I, hope, I hope that you're right. The other thing that I learned when I was doing my fervent research on this, which included me panic texting you and you being like, what the fuck are you talking about in nicer terms? Thank you. <laughs> um, was that there is a song from Bottle Rocket that Mark Mothersbaugh put in this. Mm. It's called um, Snowflake Music. Okay. And it's from Bottle Rocket, but they use it in Rushmore. Cool. You can look that up and recognize it. So, yeah, we'll find that eventually and also incredibly justified. Um, The other thing that I wanted to bring up was him getting expelled. Yes. So I know we've talked a lot. (laughs) This is the second episode. (laughs) (laughs) I've mentioned race. I want to make sure that we touch on race because I want to be... Um, I don't want to be blind. That's mm-hmm. not the right word. I got it. We got to fucking come up with words that aren't ableist. This is mm. my problem. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't think bl- blind is not the worst word to use, but there's got to be a better way to say it than just unseeing or something. Right. Um, I don't want to neglect mm-hmm. this, which is that when he gets to the public school, it's mostly people of color. Uh, yeah, what, right. Yeah, and yes. And it's one of those things where, again, that's probably right, right? Yeah. It's probably right that the elite private school is mostly white people right. and that the public school is going to be majority black, Hispanic, Asian. It's not inaccurate. But by the same token, it ends up being 
So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, he he was correct. Yes. But on the second hand, it's like basically not mentioned. It, it's not saying anything about that reality. Yes. It's just using that reality for set dressing. And in fact, the one thing it does say, I think, is when he's on the phone later and he's calling Bill Bloom. Mm-hmm. He's calling Bill Murray. A teacher who is a male teacher who is black, which is, by the way, incredibly uncommon. Um, one of the things that I've read a lot about with education is that most teachers are women. You know, once you get into high school, you get more teachers that are men. Yeah. And very few teachers are people of color. And this is one of those things, again, where Wes Anderson does something that's, like, not really offensive, but it's also, like, ah, you could have done more, you know? Yeah. It's, like, not racist, but it's also not anti-racist. Yeah. Which is that he has this, he's sort of using it to show how shitty Jason Schwartzman is, where Jason Schwartzman is being a little white privileged little punk, and he's in the hallway when he's not supposed to be, using the phone, Mm -hmm. and the dude says, do you have a phone pass? And he's like, I'm just on the phone for, like, he just thinks he can just talk on the phone to his, like, $10 million friend. Right. And completely reject what he's being told by this teacher, who, in this case, happens to be a black man, which we know is not common, even for, you know, even if he is some sort of administrator or something, it's just, like, not common. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I feel like it's just worth worth it to mention. And then, of course, you know, the one person of color that we get that isn't Kumar, who Kumar is in this again. As Mr. Little Jeans, the uh, Rushmore caretaker. Yes. Um, is uh, 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 Margaret, Margaret Yang, who's yep. Asian. Right. And she's great. Who is in the she's public smart. school and, and that's that's where they meet. Yeah, she's smart. We find out that she's also a bit of a um, conniver by the end because she's lied about her science fair. Yes, right. That... But she's also more appropriate for him to be dating. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of like that. And yet... They still end with her dancing with Bill Murray. It's like, come on. <laughs> They're not all peers. Yes. But yeah, that's I think that is like an elegant way of like closing this sure. story, which is like this chapter in Max's life. Yes. So uh, I'm glad that you brought us specifically to the subject of the population of the public school. Mm-hmm. Because I totally forgot until you brought us into this context that uh, I spotted someone. Yes, I did too. Oh, okay. So you know what I'm going to say. In the scene. Front row, right? In this, Yes, exactly. In the scene where he is in the front row of the classroom and he does a little speech to introduce himself. Because he must. He must introduce himself. He's very important. Right. And this is the speech where he says, I understand you don't have a fencing team. Well, I'm going to do, you know, everything in my power to get you one. Yeah. In the front row, on the right-hand side of the shot, also making their film debut as an uncredited, you know, background performer, Mm -hmm. uh, is a young Alexis Bledel, uh, Rory Gilmore herself. (laughs) <laughs> have you watched Gilmore Girls? Uh, not really. I mean, I've seen an episode here and there. And I unfortunately watched almost all of 
the new episodes for Netflix, which I thought were just because Dana wanted to watch them and so did Sarah and other people. I thought they were just interminable. (laughs) I have not watched that show either. And it's something that I think, I mean, this is me being just fucking dark, which is, I was talking to Auden, my mentee the other day. And I was saying how if Kenny and Elliot like tragically died, that the things I would do were move to Arizona and live with all of you. Mm -hmm. And I'd probably start doing ASMR videos. (laughs) Sure. And maybe even start, you know, you and I would very seriously get into Twitch streaming. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. We were, some of us were just- You'd have to listen to me like process my grief the whole time, but- (laughs) I, I bet people would tune in for that. I bet we would find an audience. Um, we were just talking, uh, some of us last night, about uh, the the different paths a life can take and uh, just, you know, peering through windows into the the lives of, of different content creators who have monetized uh, different aspects of life and, and making a living by, for example... We were hanging out on the back porch with our outdoor TV that mm-hmm. we as as we've started to do uh under quarantine now that the the nights are um you know it's a, not unbearable right it's bearable to hang out outside and I put on for everyone's entertainment a video from a YouTube channel called Badlands Chugs and and Badlands Chugs is a is a gentleman who uh, chugs things, uh, <laughs> and uh, he has on YouTube two point two three million subscribers. Oh my lord! So and he has advertisers, and he, that is very much his job. I I I I consider him a professional athlete. Yeah. Uh he uh he also I think he does the famous hot dog eating competition every year. I think he competes in that. Um but mainly he chugs like sodas and things. Yeah. Um f- for for YouTube. <laughs> it's great. I can't recommend it enough. So yes, it 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 makes you think. And also and- by the way, you know, having a quote unquote normal job, you know, yeah. makes you think yes. about like, okay, is there another path? Is there a path where I become somebody with an audience on the internet mm-hmm. large enough that that would be it how sustains. I make a living? Yeah. So I was talking to Auden about this and they said, you always talk about this. Like these are things you can do now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my point being that like, I don't have the time now because I'm spending that time loving my husband and taking care of my child. Right. And, um, but one of the things I think about is like, I was thinking about this when I was taking a shower earlier today. It's like, oh, if I got very ill where I couldn't really move, like if I got, for example, coronavirus, though, when I think about these things, I don't always, there's not always a global pandemic. Right. <laughs> I've definitely thought about this sans global pandemic. Yes. Um, I thought, oh, I'd probably watch Gilmore Girls then. (laughs) (laughs) I'll save that for when I'm deathly ill. Yeah. The thing I was thinking about in the shower today was I was listening to the Stay F Homecast. Or not to the Stay F Homecast. Yeah, to the Stay F Homecast. Stay F Homecast. Yeah. 
And I was thinking, uh, if I got ill, I would probably get um, uh, whatever the premium is that I could listen to every episode of Spontaneous Nation again. Stitcher premium? Yes, Stitcher premium. Yep. Oh, which is something else I wanted to bring up. This is actually very related. Hmm. Bill Murray feels very Paul F. Tompkins to me in this movie. <laughs> That's interesting. It's not a one-to-one by mm-hmm. any standard. Yeah. But there are certain things about Paul F. Tompkins that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill Murray is definitely his own person. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's more that Bill Murray is reminding me of Paul F. Tompkins than the other way around. But right. um, this movie particularly, if... For example, if they wanted to do like a reading of this movie, like mm-hmm. a reading of the script and Bill Murray was not available, I think Paul F. Tompkins would do like a bang up job. Could slip into the role. Yeah, I could see that. Which which I say in the sense that like I have such as you as do you, but I have such a great affection for Paul F. Tompkins. He just feels like someone who's always there for me. And I feel that way about Bill Murray, too. And they feel like they're sort of overlapping a little bit in this movie. That's interesting. Part of it's definitely the mustache. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. And and also the suits, which mm-hmm. like I read, I read something. I think it's in the IMDb trivia. Not particularly interesting, but I read something that like he's always wearing the same suit. He just changes his shirt and tie. <laughs> and the shirt and tie are always the same color. Uh, yeah, I, I could see... Uh, uh, sort of yeah reading paula tompkins as herman bloom uh get uh jacob tremblay in there to play max fisher (laughs) um god where were we before all of this i don't remember so just since uh just from (laughs) from this conversation about bill murray yeah i just want to shout out one of my other favorite moments in the movie yes please if I had to put a label on it, maybe I would say that this is like my favorite line reading of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's the scene outside the barbershop toward the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max meets Mr. Bloom there. He's mm-hmm. about to take him inside to meet his father. And uh, his father is going to give Mr. Bloom a haircut. Um, but when they're still outside... Uh, Max presents the the two pins that he got. Yes, and punctuality and perfect attendance. Right, of course, the only two awards that he could win as mm-hmm. as a as a bad student who, uh, you know, uh, you know, mostly did extracurriculars uh, and his grades suffered. Uh, and so he says, "I thought you could wear one, and I'll wear the other." And and ask him which do you want. And the the time it takes for Bill Murray to say anything. <laughs> is poignant yes because you feel deeply like how meaningful this is yeah and uh but and then the 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 it is simultaneously and this is this is where you need bill murray mm-hmm. it, it is simultaneously and this is a parrot i said paradox a lot last week i'll, I'll say that again it's a paradox it's simultaneously deadpan and loaded with pathos. Yes. The way he says, I'll take punctuality. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, it, which is, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. And I wanted to call it out 
because yes. it, it's sort of like on paper, maybe it should be just like a throwaway line, but like because of it's Bill Murray that makes it for the delivery and for the way that it's presented, also from like a you know filmmaking perspective, it's like a particularly poignant moment. Yeah, I also wanted to point that scene out. I had a note about that because something that's a um trope that is also life aquatic related is that Wes Anderson loves tokens. Mm -hmm. So here it's these pins for awards, which are like the things that you like, I've gotten pins for shit like this. I'm never going to wear those. (laughs) (laughs) I got a pin for donating a gallon of blood. Hmm. I've now since donated two gallons of blood, I would like to say. And I literally have never worn that pin mm-hmm. except once when I I think I wore it when I went to donate my second gallon. Sure. <laughs> um but this comes up the reason I was saying that this is very life aquatic is because there's a um like a team zasu society mm-hmm. I I'm probably fucking up the name of it ring yeah. that Owen Wilson has in life aquatic that he wears um It's like a and fan it's like club. An, yeah, and it's like an important ring. Right. At one point, he punches Bill Murray, and Bill Murray goes, "Ah, oh, you got me with your with your society ring right, or whatever right. it's called." Um, so, and again, I bring this up partially because too, it's not just that it's a small token, which of course Bill or Wes Anderson loves. It's a small token that's specifically associated with Bill Murray as an actor, right? Um. Also, I wanted to mention that scene, too, because did you hear what's playing when Mr. Bloom is giving him his haircut? Yeah, uh, there's a Charlie Brown song on the radio, right? It's the Charlie Brown version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Right, yeah. Which is it? Um, not the last time, if I remember correctly, not the last time that he will use that that soundtrack. That soundtrack is perfect. It's one of the best things ever written. I love yes. it so much. I have it on um, vinyl. It's green vinyl, oh, and I had nice. Kenny buy it for me the one year. It's like, do you, can I? Can we sidetrack to Charlie Brown Christmas special very quick? Please, we're winding <laughs> the, down. Do you know the three things that they thought would make the Charlie Brown Christmas special not succeed? That were actually the things that made it succeed. I could guess, but I don't know. They used real children's voices, mm, mm-hmm. which they had never, essentially not done before. Right. It was not a good idea to use real children's voices because they would grow out of them, sure. which is still kind of the case. But yeah. um, they used jazz mm. for the music, which was very, still very like rogue. Interesting. And they didn't have a laugh track. Oh. Which is really interesting to think about. I know we've talked about laugh tracks on this epi- on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, were we the ones talking about how there was like a show that had like the first season had a laugh track, but then the second season didn't? Or am I just thinking about another podcast? That rings a bell. Um, <laughs> but like, for example, like Arrested Development, which we've mentioned, mm-hmm. doesn't have a laugh track. And that's one of the first shows I ever saw that didn't have a laugh track. First comedy shows. Yeah. And that's in 2004 mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. So for this show, this, you know, single special right. to not have a laugh track in the 60s or whatever is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it makes sense to me that 
besides the fact that that's a perfect thing, mm-hmm. um, it makes sense to me that Wes Anderson specifically is drawn to that. Right. Yeah, completely. Um, Wes Anderson, uh, I just looked up at Charlie Brown Christmas. It came out in 1965. Wes Anderson yeah. was born in 1969. Um, I guess the last big thing, I mean, we talked we talked somewhat about music, but we haven't really talked about like the needle drops, any yes. specific needle drops. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, you know, we talked last time about like the rock and roll that Wes Anderson uses. Um, there's a lot of British invasion uh, type songs uh, yeah. scoring Rushmore, uh, like a lot of his work. There's uh, The Who and The Kinks and John Lennon mm-hmm. are on there. Did you have any favorites you wanted to shout out? I did. The one that I decided... So <laughs> I, the first one that I put as my favorite was that fucking song that I know is in something else. <laughs> the Piranhas Are a Very Tricky Species song. Not tech- and I do yeah. actually... I do actually mean that because the way that those drums work with the way that he's pacing yeah. in front of the thing is just yeah. But if I'm picking a song that isn't scored, mm-hmm. um, it's the a quick one while he's away, which is the needle drop before that montage that we spoke about, where they're sort of just Bill Murray and yes. Jason Schwartzman are the, destroying each other back the, and forth. The mischief montage, and I think that the lyrics to that song are something like. He is forgiven or something like that. Uh, um, yeah. I'll bring it up in a moment. But it's one of those things where they're just destroying each other. And the words that you're hearing over and over again, this song is so long in real life, is you are forgiven, you are, you are forgiven. Right, right. Um, Which is one of those like really brilliant, great uses of pairing lyrics right. that are extant with yes. the scene that you're it's, using. It's a clever juxtaposition in contrast to, for example, if you're picking a needle drop for a scene, you you might um, need to score a scene where a house is burning and then your needle drop is burning down the house by the talking heads. If yeah. somebody <laughs> did that, surely that show would be such a laughing stock that it wouldn't be nominated for a bunch of Emmys and win them. And I'm talking about the fucking Handmaid's Tale again, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> um, well, it didn't win an Emmy for needle drops, as far as I know. So that's so yeah, fair. There's en- no needle drop Emmy. Fair enough. Um, so, so a few things that came to mind, real quick. First off, I just want to shout out the fact that the the movie's final song, it ends mm-hmm. with a literal needle drop. It we we talked about diegetic music in the last mm-hmm. one and you talked about how you know she turns off the radio and the song stops and this one the last song we hear literally he signals the dj to put on and the dj holds up the record so you know <laughs> that that's where the song is coming from so there's a literal needle drop to score the movie and uh the next thing i wanted to okay i wanted to circle back to montage for a second mm-hmm. i said there may be too many montages Real, we're not going to go through all of them, but real quick, just off the top of my head, of course, the first montage is brilliant and necessary. The one that shows yes. all the clubs yes. and then the mischief montage we were just talking about. Great use of montage. Totally makes yes. sense. There are other there's at least one other montage where it's just like I think it just shows like Max and Miss Cross like 
getting along better. Oh, is that when he needs a tutor? Yeah, yeah, I, yes, yes. I think that's yeah. that's exactly right. And so that is sort of a moment where it's like, okay, it's kind of convenient that you're using montage to tell what happens next in the story. It's not really like the most dynamic or interesting way to, mm-hmm. to show this particular pa- sequence of events or passage of time. But okay, you know, the songs are great, so I'm, I'm not complaining. Um, yeah. the, and then the final thing I wanted to say is I think that there's a really interesting that, thing that happens where montage and more traditional scene kind of cross over. Mm-hmm. And there and it and something is kind of both at once. And I'm thinking of before the first groundbreaking, when uh, Max asks Mr. Bloom for money, mm-hmm. and and uh, they are sort of touring Mr. Bloom's steel factory, his facility, his facility, and having this ongoing conversation. But the conversation keeps going, and there are cuts in between. And, it, uh-huh. and it's sort of shot like montage because yeah. they're going from shot to shot in location to location across this tour of the facility until they finally end up in his office. Mm-hmm. And in the shot, when they're out on the floor or somewhere on a scaffolding, Bill Murray says, so how much do you need? And then it cuts to his office and he's behind his desk and Max is in the chair and Max says $35,000. Yes. And, and Bill Murray write, says writes him a check for 2500 Yeah. And Max takes it. That doesn't make any logical sense. Like what happened in the time between when he asked that in one location and then the question uh-huh. was answered in another location. But again, it's just like, like I was saying last week, the answer is it's a movie. Yes. And editing is just a trick. It's it's not literal. It's it's yeah. a trick for your brain. And in some cases, you have to bring sort of a metatextual lens to it to understand mm-hmm. that like it's not supposed to be literal. Like it's it's a trick, and sometimes it's not even it, it, like it's a it's a good trick if you don't if you don't think about it even though the movie sort of invites you to think about how little sense it's making. Yes. I have a few final thoughts. I'm highlighting them in my notes right now so I don't miss them and I don't have to look at them. Um, The first that I wanted to bring up is this movie that Bottle Rock has something that Bottle Rocket that doesn't have, uh, which is that something that I'm calling swing shots where you start at a point and they swing either 90 degrees or 180 degrees uh-huh. and then land hard right. on something else. Yes. He uses this a lot. Mm-hmm. So like I know specifically in this one, the one I'm thinking of is when Max Fisher shows up at Miss Cross's room and says, thanks for ruining my life. And then it, or it swings from her classroom where somebody's re- a student is reading something to him 180 saying right. thanks for ruining my life right those shots come up all the time i know for a fact that it comes up in the life aquatic at one point when bill murray runs out of um the hotel where they're doing a rescue mission and it swings 90 degrees to everybody else just sort of standing around yes. <laughs> uh he also likes the idea of dictating mm-hmm. because at one point he says um you know dictate this which comes up again also in the life aquatic mm-hmm. um that has one of my favorite moments on t- on page on the page that 
isn't actually spoken out loud, which we'll talk about when we actually get to play up aquatic. I also want to mention he's weirdly into guns. Yes. <laughs> which is like such a weird thing for like it's like none of these people have ever shot a gun. Right. I mean they have because they shoot them in the movies, but it's like every time it feels like the first time they're shooting a gun. Yeah, absolutely. It is it's kind of like a like all the all the violence, including the use of guns, is highly juvenile yes. and not really, you know, uh glorified in the way that like violence and guns if they exist in a movie they usually would be it's like cool and it's like it's never cool it's not when they're like picking a gun in bottle rocket and firing them to like test them it doesn't really look cool it's sort of no. it's sort of funny looking yes um that and dynamite mm-hmm. dynamite something else that shows up as a joke in the life aquatic <laughs> Yes, and when he's buying dynamite, he tells him to charge it to some place in Tucson, Arizona. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like the demolition right. company in Tucson, Arizona. Which I think I read is is a reference. It's that's that line of dialogue is like right out of another movie. I, I forget which one now. Maybe if I go back to IMDB I'll find it. And I I think that while you're looking that up, I think that the guns speak again to the idea of decadence in these movies, mm-hmm. which is that like some there are you there are times when you just have access to anything yeah and that includes the ability to just shoot things right yeah part of the joke which is sort of like a like a you that metatextual lens that i keep talking about is useful again is like part of the joke is that max's plays practically have the production value of a feature film Yes. And and like the, and the joke is how much production value they have. It's so much that it's like impossible. Um so I found Like he could he couldn't finish his Vietnam War movie at Rushmore because somebody blew a finger off, not because it was too political. It's a funny joke. Uh <laughs> the, I found the fact the scene in which Max buys dynamite including charging the purchase to an Arizona company is almost exactly as it was done at the beginning of Heat. When Val uh-huh. Kilmer's character does the same. Okay, so, there we so go. So that's a reference to Heat. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to say is that we didn't talk about, which is his plays, mm-hmm. um, which is that his plays, I feel like, do two things. The first is that it shows how youth are trying to find what we've talked about as capital M meaning. Mm-hmm. Um where he's like clearly trying to write about things that feel important, which means that there's gonna be guns and war and dynamite and a nun right (laughs) um but also that um the very hilarious thing that happens all the time which is that when you have a high school production you suddenly have children playing a range of adults right very funny and while i know that you uh think that i am abject for appreciating snl there's (laughs) a really great snl skit where they're putting on the Legally Blonde musical mm-hmm. and it's cutting between them being like, like A.D. Bryant being like, you're like when you, when you and so-and-so sang that duet together, it was like so meaningful. And it just like cuts to them on stage, like both like, mm. <laughs> like totally flat, which is, you know, these movies are, as you said, the plays are really well produced, but the idea that like, 
you know, there's Dirk, who's the small child playing, like, not only um, an adult, but also a woman nun. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and I think it's important to point out that what he is doing when he writes is he's not just spinning something, like, totally original out of his brain. Yeah. He's like, they don't really show him consuming any media, but it's, mm-hmm. like, obviously implied. Except reading books constantly. Reading books, but right, yeah, because he's very pretentious. But it's obviously implied that he must, you know, watch a lot of movies. And so Mm -hmm. his play is like an adaptation of Serpico, for example. And he's just and and that is sort of the same. A similar thing was going on in Bottle Rocket where it's like, okay, they don't outright say we're going to do it like point break like they do in Hot Fuzz where they mention specific movies that they're referencing. But you just you get the sense that like, okay, they must idolize this lifestyle because they've seen Goodfellas and so many crime movies and they're like trying to imitate that. And then my very last thing is I didn't say a favorite shot. I don't really have a favorite shot. Like there's no shot that really is like this is it. Mm -hmm. But I think what I landed on is the shot of Bill Murray holding the two coffees in mm. the paper cups yeah. and um, Rosemary Cross pouring the half and half. Yeah. Because it's the it's a very Wes Anderson shot, mm-hmm. but it also just shows a really quiet, beautiful intimacy, which I'm real into. <laughs> you, If you watch the behind-the-scenes featurette, you will see a shot of that shot being filmed. Ooh. And you will probably think, as I did... That it's remarkable, like how giant and obtrusive the apparatus <laughs> is that is yeah. capturing the, you know, looking downward close yes. up of, of the cups. Yes. So uh, that's that's everyone's homework. And yep. we will see you next week for the Royal Tenenbaums. See you next week. Bye. Love you, Will. Love you, too. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. 